on behalf of Hillhead Baptist Church and with grateful thanks to our friends at Wellington Parish Church, I welcome you to this service of remembrance and thanksgiving for the life of the Reverend Thomas Kerr Spears, known, I think, to everybody here as Kerr. We have come together today because in some way, knowing Kerr has enriched our lives. We've come to say our farewells and to seek God's comfort and strength at this time of separation. Meeting together in the context of Christian worship to remember all that Kerr has meant to us, we seek to celebrate his life and to commend him to the safekeeping of God's hands. As we gather, we listen to some ancient words of scripture, seeking to draw strength and comfort from them. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. He also said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The Apostle Paul said, I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In the tender compassion of our God, the dawn from heaven will break upon us to shine on those who live in darkness under the shadow of death and to guide our feet in the way of peace. Steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. God's mercies never end. Each morning they are renewed. So great is God's faithfulness. As I've already said, we've come today because Kerr's death, like his life, has touched each one of us. Some people here have known Kerr their entire lives, others for many years, and some only briefly. We have known him as a much-loved and respected minister, a loyal friend, a careful, radical thinker, a cherished neighbour, a loved member of our church. All of these Kerr has been. But today our thoughts and our prayers especially turn to those who have loved him best, to his family. He was the beloved husband of Betty, cherished dad to Fiona and Graham, and father-in-law to their partners, Donnie and Ali. He was grandpa to Leona, Holly, Andy, Evie, Robbie and Harry. Kerr is survived by his brother Jack and his sister Anne, and they too are held in the embrace of our prayers. Now, Kerr was a Rawdon boy, a minister trained in the distinctive style of a former Yorkshire Baptist College, which is now part of the Northern College in Manchester, where I trained. So there's a little bit of continuity there. But I think it is fitting to note the special bond that exists between cohorts of ministers in training. And so our thoughts today are with two of Kerr's cohort, Charlie Sutherland and Alan Whitley. Every one of the hymns for today's service was dear to Kerr, and as you can imagine, very difficult to cut it down to just three. As we sing them, we will find our minds carried to other places and other occasions on which they were sung. And that's good, that's helpful, I think. It's right that on this day of mixed emotions, when we mourn Kerr's death, and we rejoice that he knows the fulfilment of the promises that sustained his faith. 
we begin with a hymn of praise that echoes the reality of this moment. And so, if you are able, I invite you to stand as we sing the first hymn on the sheet, When Morning Gilds the Skies. And now let us come to God in prayer. Let us pray together. Loving God, we come to you in our time of need. You have given us life, and now we find ourselves forced to face the mystery of death. Help us to find you in the whole of life, in its beginning in its diverse experiences and in its ending. Help us to discover you in our pain as well as in our joy, in our doubts as well as in our faith, that we might find comfort in your words and new hope in Christ. Be with us now as we celebrate the life of Kerr, that through our tears we may know your comfort. And in our remembering, even in smiles and laughter, we may be assured of your never-ending love. Merciful God, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, you have shared our humanity. You know the ache of separation that accompanies the death of a loved one. For you wept at the graveside of Lazarus. You know the loneliness and the anxiety of waiting for the inevitable. For you prayed through the night in Gethsemane. And you know the moment of death on the stillness of the grave for you experienced those on Calvary and in a borrowed tomb. 
You have shown us that this is not the end. That in Christ, sin and death have been overcome. And that nothing can separate us from your love. And in that confidence hope, we make our prayer in Jesus' name, knowing that in him we are perfectly understood and eternally loved. Amen. Leona is going to read a poem for us and then we will hear our Bible reading. I thank thee, God, that I have lived in this great world and known its many joys. The song of birds, the strong sweet smell of hay and cooling breezes in the secret dusk. The flaming sunsets at the close of day, hills and the lovely heather-covered moors, music at midnight and moonlight on the sea. The beat of waves upon the rocky shore and wild white spray flung high in ecstasy. The faithful eye of dogs and treasured books, the love of kin and fellowship of friends, and all that makes life dear and beautiful. I thank thee too that there has come to me a little sorrow and sometimes defeat, a little heartache and the loneliness that comes with parting and the words goodbye. Dawn breaking after weary hours of pain when I discovered that night's gloom must yield and morning light break through to me again. Because of these and other blessings poured unasked upon my wandering head, because I know that there is yet to come an even richer and more glorious life, and most of all, because thine only Son once sacrificed life loves, life's loveliness for me, I thank thee, God, that I have lived. From Psalm 139. Lord, You have examined me, and you know me. You know everything I do. From far away, you understand all my thoughts. You see me, whether I am working or resting. You know all my actions. Even before I speak, you already know what I will say. You are all around me on every side. You protect me with your power. Your knowledge of me is too deep. It is beyond my understanding. Where could I go to escape from you? Where could I get away from your presence? If I went up to heaven, you would be there. If I lay down in the world of the dead, you would be there. If I flew away beyond the east or lived in the furthest place in the west, you would be there to lead me. You would be there to help me. I could ask the darkness to hide me or the light around me to turn into night. But even darkness is not dark with you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are the same to you. You created every part of me. You put me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because you are to be feared. All you do is strange and wonderful. I know it with my heart. When my bones were being formed, carefully put together in my mother's womb, when I was growing there in secret, you knew that I was there. You saw me before I was born. The days allotted to me had all been recorded in your book before any of them began. O God, how difficult I find your thoughts, how many of them there are. If I counted them, they would be more than the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Amen.
Thank you both very much indeed. One of Kerr's great gifts was his ability to welcome all kinds of people and to make them feel valued. And so it is fitting that our second hymn echoes that reality. Let us build a house where love can dwell and all can safely live. All are welcome. All are welcome in this place. Please stand if you can as we sing.
privileged to invite Kerr's son, Graham, to bring us a tribute to his father. On behalf of my mum, Fiona, and I, I'd like to thank all of you for coming to this service of thanksgiving this morning. In recent days, the incredible kindness of people has been a huge source of comfort to us, reminding me again that the Christian church, in its different guises and for all its faults, is a wonderful institution. Having said that, I might also point out that my family has been the recipient of kindness and concern from people who have no church connection whatsoever, proving, as my dad would have said, that no one group has an exclusive claim on goodness. I'm hardly going to stand here and give you an unbiased account of my dad's life, so you'll have to forgive my immodest claims about him. My dad was a great guy, a wonderful father, and I cannot believe that my years and years of fun, friendship, debate, and occasional bickering with him are now over. If I also had a pound, if I only had a pound for the number of people who have said to me down the years, Graham, what a preacher your dad is, or what a presence he has in the pulpit. He was a Baptist minister for 50 years, a man of amazing, intellectually vigorous faith, and while he believed Christianity was far from perfect and had tensions to be resolved, to the end he remained implacable about one thing, the truth of Jesus Christ lived, crucified, and risen again. I say he was a preacher for 50 years. In fact, he may well have been a preacher for 65 or 70 years because my Uncle Jack, on the way back from the crematorium this morning, told me this faintly preposterous tale about him when, he was, when my dad was a young kid. Apparently, he had this little mini piano that he used to go around when he was 12 or 13 or 14. He used to go preaching around the mining communities of Lanarkshire rousing the faithful with this mini piano. Now, the only thing about my dad's piano playing was he could only play the black notes, so he was severely limited in his uh, musical range. You can just imagine the racket there would have been when he was playing these hymns. But I inherited just about all of his loves. He loved football, and so do I. He loved the church, with a capital C, Baptist, Brethren, Presbyterian, Episcopal, Catholic, he had a great respect for the Christian church with a capital C, and so do I. He loved the Highlands, Ardnamurk and Speyside, and so do I. He hooted at Dad's army on the telly, and so do I. And he loved his wife, my mum, dearly, and so do I. I inherited a lot of his loves. Alas, he inherited few of mine. When I went to university and discovered that I quite enjoyed going for a pint of beer with the boys, Dad's stony Baptist puritanism didn't approve of this at all. Disgusting stuff, he used to say to me every time I was getting a bottle of beer out. Elton John he could take in only very small doses. (laughs) Elvis Costello he regarded as a total abomination. My dad loved the Bible. He poured over the Bible in a way that I still find astounding. All that Old Testament stuff, Leviticus, Judges, Deuteronomy, the sort of stuff that many of us here might find tedious, he couldn't get enough of it. He found it gripping. He thought it teemed with human insight and truth. And I would go up to his study to find him in his retirement years, and there he would be wading through some endless yarn from Ezekiel or Zechariah. And I sometimes used to wonder if there was anyone in the city of Glasgow that had a greater knowledge of the Bible than my dad. He was born in 1931 in Hamilton, the son of a mining engineer who went from the pit to the pulpit to become a minister. And I'm not sure about this, but I think my grandpa Spears, who my dad's dad, was an admirable man, but also maybe a bit of a cantankerous character. I have to watch what I say here because my uncle Jack and Aunt Tan, my dad's two remaining siblings, are sitting right in front of me. Uh, But from what I can gather, their dad, my grandpa, whom I never knew, had a frisky temper, and he fell out with just about every set of deacons of every church he served when he was a minister. And the odd thing is, while my grandpa was surely a man of his time and place, 
which is to say a, a Lanarkshire Baptist, fairly conservative and puritanical, he nonetheless had this son, my dad, whose predisposition would somehow be liberal, radical, provocative, who took to task head-on many of the standard beliefs of his own background. It's a disconnectedness I have never fully worked out. For example, one of the standard beliefs of the Christian church, and certainly the Lanarkshire Baptist tradition, was that you had to believe in God to be saved. Well, my dad wasn't having this. I once heard him proclaim, potentially offensively from the pulpit, there is nothing that frightens some Christians more than the idea that God might want to save all men and women. If there are people here of little faith or no faith, they, they maybe hope he's right with that sentiment. I believe the partial answer to this recurring attitude of my dad was, he, was that he was blessed with original thought. He was prepared to be an original thinker. He was convinced about the Christian faith, but less so in my experience about some of its cosier or even more complacent attitudes. <clears throat> he started his ministry in Morningside in Edinburgh, and then he moved to Anstruther in order to study for a second degree at St. Andrews University. But it was his hillhead ministry in the 1970s, just around the corner from here, where I guess he came into his prime. There, were some, there are some here today who will recall this dark-haired, young, dynamic preacher who came into their midst, his sermons teeming with biblical and literary references, Solzhenitsyn, Tolstoy, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Albert Schweitzer, Martin Luther King, St. Augustine, a bonfire of polemic and preaching, which I think it's fair to say fairly captivated the large Morningside and Hillhead congregations of the time. When I got into my teens, and this might explain a lot, I got into a habit of jotting down words used by my dad in the pulpit and asking adults later what they meant. What is an enigma, I would ask somebody? What is a euphemism? What is an epithet? What does kerigmatic mean? And yes, what, what are hermeneutics? Quite often the adults hadn't a clue themselves. <clears throat> my dad, when we were at St Andrews once, we, we looked up a, an old dissertation my dad had uh, that he submitted for his B-Phil about a, a guy that, as far as I know, has fallen off the radar, F.D. Morris. And the title of this dissertation was the by Kerr Spears, the kerygmatic contribution of F.D. Morris to a Christological perspective of something or other. <clears throat> I said, Dad, what is this guff all about? Those hillhead days gave expression to the clearest mandate of my dad's faith, which was to reach out to the poor. He started a Friday night friendship room down in the refurbished crypt. Some of you here will remember that. Whereby the homeless, down and outs, chronic alcoholics and other hopeless men and women leading brutalized lives would turn up and eat hot soup, play dominoes and cards, and then receive prayers of healing and intercession from my dad at 9pm. I have a vivid memory as a nine-year-old sometime in the early 1970s of going down into that crypt and standing at the doorway and taking in the scene. For some reason, it seemed to me then, and it still seems to me now, all of these men smoked. And I stood at that doorway, four feet tall, and took in this teeming mayhem in front of me. They arrived in their scores, these men, and beneath this thick plume of smoke permanently hovering beneath the ceiling, here was this multitude, and right in the middle of them, his sleeves rolled up and his hat tie hanging loose, my dad talking, laughing, teasing with these men, and then offering them prayers of healing at 9pm. For all that he was a lay theologian, Christianity wasn't a theological plaything to dad. It was about getting your hands dirty, getting stuck in. And and trying to make people's lives better. I saw it again and again in his ministry. There can be no doubt that of the three great themes of Christianity, faith, hope, and love, for Kerr Spears, the greatest of these was love. In this context, I heard him preach maybe a thousand times, 
And his favorite reference in a sermon came from a scene in that great novel, The Power and the Glory by Graham Greene. Some of you might be familiar with this story. The shambolic whiskey priest on the run from everyone, not least the authorities, scurrying across rural Mexico, a man who knows what is right but can do no right. There is a scene in that novel which my dad, I can testify, referred to many times in different pulpits, and I can still, I can still hear his voice. The whiskey priest on the run comes upon some scene of carnage in a small village, thieves, robbers, prostitutes, men and women living out their cheap and trashy lives, and upon seeing this, only one thought entered the priest's head. God so loved the world. That scene and his repeated references to it in his preaching explained my dad's friendship room on a Friday night in Hillhead. Nothing, I believe, can better define his Christian ministry. Over time, dad developed quite an edgy relationship with some of these characters in the friendship room. I remember before one Christmas Eve service, there was a set two outside the church between two friendship room men, and one of them was threatening to whack the other over the head with a bottle. He's gone now, so I can maybe mention one of their names. Do it. Many of you here remember Billy Fulton, who hung around Hillhead. Anyway, the argument seemed to be over one of them calling the other a bam. He called me a bam, Billy Fulton shouted at the other guy, who hurled the accusation back at him. I was standing at the top of the church steps, and I watched as my dad intervened and said, Billy, what does it matter which one of you is the bam? Hand me that bottle. <laughs> <clears throat> Ten minutes later, Dad was in his pulpit calling the faithful to worship. I loved his fun and his engagement with me. We played football together and from about the age of seven, having moved to Glasgow, me and Dad and my best childhood pal, who went by the name of the Big Bal, would go to Ibrox every Saturday to see a game. The Big Bal, who might be here today, the Big Bal, by the way, was about this high. In those childhood days... A Saturday in our house was like this, the sound of my dad bashing out his sermon on on his typewriter in the morning to the game in the afternoon, and then at night, dad sitting for a few hours looking over his prayers, looking over his sermon again, me washed into my pyjamas and ready for dad and I to sit down and watch the telly, Kojak at 9pm, and then sports reel at 10 past 10, introduced by Archie McPherson. This is an apparently irrelevant incidental, but my dad loved watching Kojak. He loved the character depicted by Telly Savalas, this tough, gritty, streetwise New York City cop, whose greatest qualities, nonetheless, you could argue, were pity and compassion. It was only years later, remembering this, that I realized that dad saw everything through a theological prism. He quite often saw what our faith was about in the most unlikely places. For all the fun and laughter and teasing that we shared, he wasn't averse to upbraiding me. Never was this more nerve-wracking for me than when I walked into my mum and dad's house in Annie's land, where they retired, to find him sitting slumped in his chair, this erudite, sharp-minded man, with the sports pages of the Herald or the Times propped up in his face. Sometimes I would nervously tiptoe around behind him as he was engrossed in his reading, only to see, and this made me even more nervous, my own byline or mugshot above the article he was reading. He would say to me, this is a hopeless sentence construction you've got here. You've got an adverb and the subject the wrong way around. It's a disaster, this sentence. One time he even said to me, how you got an award last year writing a sentence like that, I'll never know. We were up in Speyside about three years ago and I was driving the car when me and dad and my son Robbie, who was six months old at the time, were involved in a car accident. Basically, it was a winding forest track and this car was coming the other way. It was all the other guy's fault. And as I veered off the road and headed straight for a tree, I'm sorry to say I started swearing very loudly. Our car eventually settled against a bush and everything turned out fine but there was a bit of a silence from Dad when we got back to the house, and I knew what he was thinking. Disgraceful language from you back there at that accident, he said to me. 
I said, Dad, we were heading straight for the base of a tree. Disgusting language. I never knew you were capable of such disgraceful language as that. I blamed the influence of journalists I ran with, and he seemed to accept that as a good reason for him. <clears throat> I loved him, and I will really miss him. I have been an immensely privileged son, but I wasn't his favorite. That accolade goes to Fiona, my sister. Of course, Dad wasn't really into favoritism, but I've always said that by the width of one of his bushy eyebrows, if he had to choose, if he was held at the point of a bayonet, choose, then Fiona, literally the fair one, would clinch it. All his life, right to his end, he doted on his firstborn. Fiona has gone by various family names, Fiona, Fifi, Weedy, and my earliest recollections are of my dad playing with her, chasing her, causing her to squeal with laughter, and then later on, boyfriends, the dreaded adolescent period, and believe me, with Weedy there was mayhem during that time. <laughs> I remember dad having an intuitive understanding of her and having her trust. It is quite a special thing to witness a father-daughter relationship of deep love, and I have been a witness to that. Weedy in later life took it upon herself to harden up dad's private security, particularly in relation to his dosh. To the best of my knowledge, he wasn't a man of any great wealth, but he did have two or three bank accounts with various miserly amounts floating around in them. And in his wallet, beside his various bank cards, Dad kept a handy piece of paper which said, Pin numbers, don't forget. <clears throat> bank of Scotland, brackets, blue card, 4634. Alliance in Leicester, brackets, orange card, 6968. Abbey National, brackets, red and white card, 9492. Fiona took it upon herself to get all this sorted out. Throughout his life, the minute my dad caught sight of his daughter, he felt happy. And as he grew older, the moment he saw Fiona, he felt safe and relieved. And for the record, when he set eyes on me, he felt neither of these emotions. <clears throat> as for my mum, throughout all of this, my dad's companion has been my mum. Married in 1958, going out together since 1953. This is now 2011. In effect, 58 years. That's quite an innings. I'm not going to stand here and deny there was the odd squabble along the way, but my mum has loved and cared for dad all these years in a way that you can scarcely comprehend. In many ways, dad wasn't house-trained, which resulted in him getting in the neck sometimes from my mum for various messes he created. That's a very familiar scenario to me in my house, actually. But she has loved him devotedly, and he told me up in Speyside earlier this year that he couldn't have imagined his life without mum and of how much his love for her had endured all these years. And I know he loved her dearly. And certainly, Fiona and I are glad they got together. <clears throat> If Hillhead was a prime time for my dad, then at the age of 60, he had the incredible good fortune to be invited on the back of his reputation as a preacher to become the minister of Yorkminster Park Baptist Church in Toronto. And for nine blissful years, my parents lived in Canada and loved their lives out there. And for dad, first and last a preacher, it was like going back 80 years in time to, the, to a day when the crowds used to roll up to churches on this side of the Atlantic and over there, huge congregations in the morning. On my first visit to see him in Toronto, I couldn't believe it. There were over a thousand people sitting in the pews listening to him preach that Sunday morning. I remember thinking, Dad, you have landed on your feet out here. He must have found it as a preacher an immensely fulfilling experience. But to everything there is a season, a time to be born and a time to die. After a happy retirement back in Glasgow, in recent times his life was becoming more difficult and he was tiring through his Parkinson's when he was struck down by a severe stroke on Maundy Thursday of this year during Holy Week. The great communicator and thinker suddenly had his speech denied him 
And for the next five and a half months, my dad soldiered on in an incapacitated state, paralyzed down one side, bedridden, unable to move much or change his own clothes. It was not the dad I had known all my life. In recent days, I've tried to find a word that best captured my dad's, to me anyway, qualities. He was obviously a wonderful father and and a very fine preacher, and that goes without saying. But I think I would use the word insight. He was blessed with a great insight about life and about faith and about the human condition. He had a mind that was able to capture with some very fine words the truth of situations. And please let me close with this very brief recollection. I was at the U.S. Masters Golf Tournament in America a number of years ago when the chairman of the club, a man named Billy Payne, the chairman of Augusta National, gave his usual Wednesday morning press conference. Payne was a fine, amiable man who had lost his own father, a locally well-known businessman and civil rights leader, when he was just 19 years old. And for some reason, the questions that Wednesday morning at that press conference strayed onto the subject of Billy Payne's father. And he finished the session by saying, I don't have the words to describe the love and respect I had for my father. I was thunderstruck by these words. There were around a hundred of us, a hundred journalists in that press room, and I was the very last to get up and leave. I knew there and then that years down the line, whenever it would be, these would be the words I would speak of my own father when the time came to bid him goodbye. And that day is today. We made our goodbyes to Kerr Spears at the crematorium this morning. My family, Mum, Fiona and I, will cherish his memory. I do not have the words to describe the love and respect I had for my dad. I think those are words that many of us would echo. We do not have the words to describe the love and respect we had for Kerr. So now we are going to hear some music played and have opportunity to recall quietly and privately what he has meant to us.
that Kerr was a great preacher, there is no doubt. And so it is a privilege, but also a responsibility to address you in the context of this serving service of thanksgiving and celebration for his life. A call to ordained ministry is a call to walk with all kinds of people in all kinds of situations. And that call affords tremendous privilege as the minister is granted access to the most significant moments in the lives of individuals and families. And the call carries with it huge responsibility since these same people trust him or her to speak and to act in ways that bring the gospel, the good news, to their most vulnerable moments. This challenge of privilege and responsibility Kerr knew well and understood deeply. He accepted it and he lived it out through a long life. To speak words of hope to those who are bewildered or grief-stricken is no small demand. And a wise minister will learn where the resources can be found for such moments. In this, as in many other ways, Kerr was indeed a wise minister. One of the resources that Kerr drew on was a line from a poem by T.S. Eliot, which has its origins in the words of the medieval mystic Julian of Norwich. All will be well, and all will be well, and all manner of things will be well. Behind these simple words lies a profound trust in God, a trust able to weather the storms of life, to believe that somehow, in all things, however trying, however confusing, however distressing, God is there, working for the good of those who love God. This trust believes that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And it is this that lies at the heart of the words of the psalmist, which were read for us a little while ago. Looking around, I see many other ministers here. And I expect many of us who are ministers have sat at the bedside of somebody who is ill or dying and read the familiar words of Psalm 139. I can in all honesty say that just a few days before his death, I sat at Kerr's bedside, held his hand and read those words to him firmly believing they would offer him comfort and hope as he neared the conclusion of his earthly life. It is a beautiful psalm, and one which gives us images of the God in whom Kerr had placed his trust. I don't usually do three-point sermons, but you're going to get one today. It's not really a hillhead thing. Firstly, a God who knows us intimately and is interested in every minute and mundane detail of our lives. You see, too easily, the image of an all-knowing God slides into one of a frightening and condemning ogre, someone we fear to offend, someone who is waiting to smite us if we say or do something wrong. That's not the God in whom Kerr believed nor yet the gods in whom the psalmist believed. This is a God who cares about what is going on in our everyday lives. Our sleeping, our waking, our working, playing, speaking and thinking. And it's interesting to know how much Kerr loved the Old Testament. Had we read this psalm in Hebrew we would have heard of a God whose hand is cupped over us, 
a little bit like an umbrella or a shield against the elements, offering us protection from whatever would harm us, but still allowing us freedom to be. However we feel today, whatever is going on in our lives, for each of us, like Kerr, is the assurance that God's protective hand is cupped over us. Secondly, the psalmist speaks of a God who is with us everywhere, before us, behind us, above us, below us, beside us. When the psalmist says, surely the darkness will hide me, this is not suggesting that he's trying to evade God, that he's ashamed or embarrassed. Rather, it expresses a concern that just maybe there is somewhere that God can't be, that God might sometime be absent in the darkest moment. But no, God can make even the darkness seem light. Not in a twee, Pollyanna kind of way that pretends all is good when it's not. But a God who accompanies us in the dark places. A God whose right hand, the strong creator's hand, will hold us fast, even when we find ourselves in dark, frightening or lonely places. Her new moments of fear and bewilderment and anxiety and probably of regret. But he also knew that wherever he was, literally or metaphorically, God was there with him, holding him safe. And that is true for each one of us too. And then thirdly, a God who is with us beyond time, both before we are conceived and after we have died. There are two great mysteries, at least, to which science cannot provide answers. Where does our innermost being, our very essence, come from? And where does it go when we die? These are mysteries not just in the everyday sense of being a puzzle, but actually in a deep theological sense, in matters of faith. The God Kerr believed him, knew him even before he was formed. All the time he was hidden in his mother's womb, all through his long and interesting life, through death, and now knows him in the life of eternity. In this psalm, we are given a glimpse of the Christian hope that is seen most fully in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. Christ who was and is and is to come. Of course, today, we are sad that Kerr is no longer among us. Never again will we see that smile or hear his voice, never again will he embrace or be embraced by us. But despite that sadness, we are glad, because he now experiences the fulfilment of the promises he trusted, the promises he preached, the promises he embodied in his earthly life. And these promises are for every one of us too that the God who protects and guides and sustains us will never leave us and will never fail us. That, in the end, all will be well, and all will be well, and all manner of things will be well. We come now to our prayers, giving thanks for Kerr's life and seeking God's help in our continuing lives. Let us pray together. Father God, 
We thank you for the life of Kerr, now gone from among us all. For all your goodness to him, and all that he has been to those who have loved him through a rich and long life. We thank you for the way Kerr's life has shown us glimpses of your goodness, mercy and love. We thank you for what has been unique and special about him. His love of family, his keen inquiring mind, his loyal service to the churches he served as minister, his passion for ecumenism, equality and inclusion, for his welcome and acceptance of all types and conditions of people mirroring the example of Christ, for his friendship, encouragement and self-giving. We thank you for the ways he has been special to each of us. And now we bless you that his sins are forgiven, his pain and suffering are ended, and any past hurt or regret left behind. Help us to be content to release him to you in the faith and hope we have in Christ our Lord. Loving God, we thank you for the friendship and peace that Kerr has brought, for all that he has given to us. We pray that nothing of his life will be lost, but will be of benefit to the world, and that all that was important to him will be respected by those of us who follow behind. We pray for Kerr's closest family, for Betty, for Fiona and Donnie, for Graham and Ali, for Leona, Holly, Andy, Evie, Robbie and Harry. And we pray for his surviving siblings, Jack and Anne. May their memories of Kerr comfort them as they recall and celebrate what he continues to mean to them. May they know the safe embrace of your love and of ours in the weeks and months ahead as they adjust to this new season of their lives. We pray for the churches and congregations Kerr served so faithfully, naming before you Morningside, Anstruther, Hillhead, Thomas Coates and Yorkminster Park Baptist Churches, the Scottish Episcopal Church and the Congregational Federation as they each continue to serve you in their own unique context. May the legacy of Kerr's faithful service continue to inspire their work. And we pray for those who in our day accept your call to be a prophetic voice in the church, to name injustice and exclusion for what they are, to challenge oppressive structures and systems, to speak words of hope, and the future. Especially, we pray for the work of Christian ecumenism, of which Kerr was a strong advocate, and for the overcoming of barriers to ordained ministry for all those whom God has called. May your spirit wisdom lead us onwards to fulfil the hopes to which Kerr, through her guidance, aspired. And lastly, we pray for ourselves, that we whose lives have been enriched by knowing her may continue to grow in faith and love to the glory of your name. We make these prayers in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Our closing hymn surely sums up a lot of what Kerr stood for, the hope he trusted in. All my hope on God is founded, all my trust he shall renew. Please stand if you are able as we sing.
Just before the final blessing, I have three reminders. Firstly, there is a retiring offering in support of the St Margaret of Scotland Hospice. And if you leave through the doors at that end, you will find collection vessels for that. Secondly, if you have not yet signed the Book of Condolences, which is also in the porch at that entrance, would you please do so before you go? And lastly, there is an open welcome to everybody who would like to, to come to the Grosvenor to share in refreshments, conversation and memories of Kerr. And please do come, because Fiona's ordered lots of food and she's going to be very upset if we don't turn up to eat it. And so a blessing. May the road rise up to greet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. And may the rain fall soft upon your fields. And... Until we meet again, may God hold you in the palm of his hand. Amen.